Hello! Welcome back to Shreya and Yanin's podcast. Today we're continuing a conversation that we started last week called The Diversity of Evangelicalism. I'm here with my friend Yanin. Hi guys! Hello! Yeah, Yanin and I, we can't see each other right now because we're on Zoom, but we have our video paused because I'm here in Nigeria and I'm working off of a hot spot right now. So that's sad. <laughs> so really, it's an authentic podcast because we can't see your face. You can't see our face. We can't see each other's faces. <laughs> yep. This is like a for real podcast. Yep. Well, do you want to remind us what we were talking about in part one of this episode? Yeah. Um, well, in part one of this episode, um, basically we're talking about political theology, right? The um, As we mentioned before, Shreya and I took a class called political theology together, which was really, uh, I think in many ways, like really informative and illuminating for the two of us. And so we sought to apply the principles that we learned in that course and uh yeah apply that in the current american evangelical context um and so we then began to explore the realities of american evangelicalism the material history of it or at least also just like our lived experiences with me being a filipino and her being an indian uh, both living in our diasporic communities here in the u.s and uh, just seeking to explore uh, in many ways kind of like what the current state of evangelicalism is as it relates to culture, race, and ethnicity. Um, and so now we are going to keep talking about that, but specifically more about uh, how we as evangelicals can not only understand and apprehend the diversity of evangelicalism, the fact that it is not only a white religion, it's also it is a faith that is, um, yeah, that is beheld <laughs> and a faith that uh, peoples of color like um, identify with. And so um, we want to be able to wrestle with that as well as its practical political implications, specifically in kind of the current missiological context of the United States, as well as the pluralistic context of interfaith dialogue. And so yeah, there's a lot to cover cover in this episode. Not sure if we can cover all of it, but we'll try. Um, but anyway, uh, to kind of start things off, uh, Shreya, last episode, you talked about being an Indian American woman and what that means for you in an interfaith context. And uh, I would kind of just want to ask you to just, if you could share more about what you mean by that and how you think that's helpful, especially for our listeners who are um, wanting to explore the diversity of evangelicalism and what that could mean for them in their own contexts in dialogue with people of other faiths and religious backgrounds. Yeah, for sure. So for me, um, I think interfaith context is a very new concept. Um because I would say I was formed to believe in binaries and um, kind of a black and white way of thinking. And that formation took place, I would say, um, in the US 
And that's really not the way that I would say that my Indian family thinks. That's not their um, formation or their worldview. Um, and so there, there came to be sort of a disconnect and some sort of dissonance, I would say, with um, just our ways of approaching um, interfaith dialogue. And as I grew up and became a Christian, I was unable to converse in a healthy and open and empathetic way with people of other faith backgrounds. Um, Even though I grew up in Hinduism, I wasn't able to really empathize or appreciate people um, that had a different faith than me after I became a Christian. And so now, um, now as someone that is in college and about to graduate um, and enter into um, adulthood and my future career, um, I'm trying to put these pieces back into place because obviously... Um, there's something deep within me with my experiences that I should be able to empathize with people that are different than me because at one point I was different than, uh, than myself. And so I think if we can look within ourselves and unlock, um, those times where we were confused and we were growing and we were searching, then we would be able to empathize with each other more, um, and so that, that, that's like really the beginning of my interfaith dialogue. It's not even just, it doesn't just start with um, other people, but I think it starts with yourself. Um, I think it starts with letting there be like a gray area in your own mind, in your own um, formation, your own epistemology, because you literally can't, know everything you can't have all the answers um but we are formed especially in evangelical christianity to just depend on this concept of truth where we cling to it so tightly that we start to mistreat others along the way and we weaponize it i think we weaponize our truth um And so now that I'm beginning to look within myself, um, it affects how I have relationships with those around me. And that really began, I I began to see a transformation really with my um, Indian family. And I know that confessionally, we might have different faiths, but I'm realizing more and more that there's so much more common ground and there's so much more respect and dignity that we can give to one another. Um, And so those are really core values and pillars of interfaith dialogue. Um, But yeah, what do you what do you think about that? Is that something that you see like trends of in the evangelical church? Um, 
and I know that that can play out differently in different contexts because um, with Hinduism, I would say they are a lot more accepting, um, generally speaking, of people that have other faiths. Um, but that's not the case for maybe all global religions, you know? Yeah, I think that what you're sharing is incredibly compelling. And I think that it, that really exposes, right, the problems that we are facing today and the challenges that we're facing in the contemporary evangelical context. I think that there is something really crucial about being in relationship with people who are different so that we as evangelicals and as Christians can fully and truly embody what it means to follow Jesus, right? What it means to be his disciples in this world uh, and what it means to witness to the gospel together under the Lord, <laughs> right? Um, and so I'm really compelled by what you're saying and I'm actually really curious if you could share more just about your Hindu background, right? You mentioned a little bit about your family, about how you grew up and just your relationships with them now, with your uh, Indian family. And so I'm curious if you could just share more about that and what that means, right? Uh, for us today uh, and for our listeners who are wondering like, okay, what does it mean for me to be in relationship with people who are different while remaining Christian? Yeah, so in the Hindu context, I mean, basically if I want to reiterate what I'm saying, at least from my own experiences, my family has never judged me for becoming a Christian. But what they, what, like, a value for them is to not force your beliefs onto someone else. It's, it's that you have autonomy over what you believe um well maybe autonomy isn't the right word but I just know that like it's more this idea of like tolerance tolerance yeah and that is like a core value that is and that's not I do not see that same value in the evangelical church and I think that's what we're missing we're literally when we are trying to have interfaith dialogue from an evangelical perspective, the, what, the, what, uh, the way that we're viewing the other person or community is how can I enter in and tell them the right thing so that they change their mind? And so we're almost on this like offensive outreach conversion technique um, Whereas, like, interfaith dialogue isn't asking anyone to change, but it is coming to the table with dignity and respect and mutual understanding and common ground. And the idea of tolerance is something that is um, a core value for people of other faiths um, that maybe are not evangelical, um, that are maybe not even Christian, like, for example, like, Hinduism, like, at least from the, from the people that I have interacted with, so my Hindu family, Hindu friends, um, tolerance is a key value, and so how are we as Christians 
even to communicate love to people when we're not willing to share their values because then we're offending them and we're building walls between us in conversation and dialogue and we're speaking over each other and what we're demanding is that you need to understand love on my terms i'm going to define love for you and then i'll love you based on what i define as love and then you have to be willing to accept it and if you don't then well um Jesus said that I would be persecuted for my faith or Jesus said that I would lose friends and family for my faith. And I think we bring these things on to ourselves because we don't really understand what it looks like to love or empathize or commit to someone no matter what. And I, I want to turn to scripture and try to dig deeper and see like the ways in which Jesus, especially like in his earthly ministry, in an incarnational model, like the ways that he loved people, um, no matter what. But at the same time, I feel like you can, you can pick and choose examples from scripture and different narratives, and you can, you can almost weaponize scripture in that same way to say what you want it to say. Um, whether you're working from like a conversionist framework um, or whether you're working from a more like interfaith dialogue common ground type of framework and so how are we as Christians as evangelicals supposed to find like a model for this and how are we supposed to follow it biblically um, and really like what works and and I think a big part of this is like, what is our goal? Like, what is our end goal? Are we wanting these people to confess saving knowledge in Christ so that we can assure ourselves that we'll see them in heaven one day? Or are we trying to like love them and empathize with them here and now to build like real relationships on, on this earth? And just like kind of trust that that is what God has called us to. Last night, I was able to have a discussion with a bunch of friends. With um, he was uh, he worked formerly for Barack Obama um, during Barack Obama's presidency as kind of one of his um, yeah one of his like uh, uh, advisors in a sense uh, regarding uh, religion and. Uh, kind of like religious and values issues and so his name's Michael Ware he's uh, currently uh, a leading strategist a speaker he's um, uh, researching the intersection of faith politics and um, what it means to really like love your neighbor in the political sphere uh, which kind of brings up I think a lot of um, the same things that you're talking about Shreya of um, <laughs> why are evangelicals just so stuck so stuck and in many ways unable to speak or even just have like meaningful relationships with people who are different from them who are people who are not even evangelicals or christian at all uh, and michael ware just kind of brought up this point that a lot of times that happens when you are stuck in your own communities um when you're not able to extend beyond or even if you don't know anyone 
who is beyond your own communities. Um, and so for him, he's speaking specifically from, you know, the political binary of Republicans and Democrats and the polarization we're seeing today between these two camps of like, one says that the other uh, is off the devil <laughs> or the other is immoral or the other uh, is tearing apart the nation and breaking everything down and um, kind of like cursing each other and not able to empathize with each other because they're not friends with each other. Uh, a lot of extremist groups um, are living precisely within a bubble and um, because they're unable to see beyond the bubble, then they're unable to build those complex and meaningful relationships with people who are outside of the bubble. Um, and so in many ways, that's kind of the problem we're seeing. Yes. Yeah, sorry. This is like a quick side note, but even you using the word extremist group, as if you and I are somewhere here in this middle ground and we're allowed to call one end and the other end extremist. When in reality those people would never call themselves extremists. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. who's who's to say, you know? Not that I'm advocating for certain extremist beliefs, but like we put labels on people. I think that's that's the point I'm trying to make. Um without mm -hmm. having the charity to let them define themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, or even just like seeing them for who they are, you know? So this is the, the, the um, this is kind of what a lot of historians are working on today. They're, a lot of historians of American religious history um, are really trying to understand what's happening today by going back to the past, obviously. That's the work of history. Go back to the past, look at the data, make connections, and really like imagine. Imagine what history was so that we could understand what history is for us today. And so one book that I'm reading on this right now is called, uh, yeah, so it's a book called Heathen by Catherine Jin Lum. And uh, she's a, a scholar of American religious history. And the book specifically is about religion and race in American history. It's a very fascinating book that tries to deconstruct and really like <laughs> re, in, in a sense, like re- imagine what the word heathen could be by specifically by critiquing it um and so what's really fascinating in that work whether you agree with it or not i think in reading it you can see that it the colonial processes of the past are still what's affecting our uh political operations today and so what i mean by that and what she also means by that is that there has this, uh, there was this social imaginary, right? A colonial imaginary in the past that formed, uh, especially among, uh, through the work of Christian missions and Christian missionaries. And it formed at that site precisely because these Christian missionaries, when they were entering what they called the new world, um, were unable to actually see <laughs> who those people they called heathens were. Um, they just kind of uh, wow. put this label heathen over them without actually knowing who they were. Um, they saw their practices, their cultures, their languages, their lands even, the places that they lived in, and saw all of that as heathenistic, which was in many ways also primitive and barbaric um, and uncivilized. And so 
they arrived at these new places carrying with them what they thought would have been the gospel but then as soon as they arrived there imposed a distorted vision of the gospel that actually in the end colonized these places and it colonized precisely because they did not see the natives and the indigenous peoples they encountered for who they were and who they are <laughs> but instead imposed this this um this false kind of like blanket statement right that brought with it their own cultural interpretations of the land and the people that were there, if that makes sense, um, and just called them heathens. Um, and so in many ways, I think, maybe not to the same extreme degree, but I think in many ways, we can still fall to the same problems today of seeing a different group outside of our normal communities, outside of our circles, and then imposing this label on them right? Maybe it wouldn't be heathen anymore, but you could call them something else. Uh, you could call them maybe, I mean, Democrat, uh, that Democrat, or oh, that Republican, or oh, that Muslim, or oh, that Hindu, or oh, that Buddhist, or oh, that Christian, oh, that evangelical, oh, that so-and-so secular. forth, you know? Oh, this, yeah, secular. The, the secularists, or the moderns, or the postmoderns, or the postcolonials, or you know what I mean? Like, you can, there's now yeah. these different terms that carry with it so much baggage and we're like applying that to all these different groups and peoples and because of that we're really unable to see beyond those terms we're unable to see these people actually enter into their communities enter their towns their cities and their neighborhoods and touch the dirt <laughs> where they're living yeah. and actually know them for who they are and see their faithful practices see the ways in which they love one another and sacrifice for one another mm -hmm. in their communities and really have a high value for life and the sacredness of life that they usually like i mean have a reverence for creation and for god like i don't know this could apply to like a number of communities across the world but um yeah, we often come in with our list of um, doctrine and mm. dogma. And if they don't check those boxes, then, yeah, they're heathen. <laughs> yeah. Or whatever else term that we could use in place of the term heathen. Um, and I think this is, it's really important now, I feel like, like you're talking about, Shreya, is to go back to the Bible, to go back to the scriptures, and to actually read the texts and to see how the texts of the Bible like speak to us today, right? That's that's the work of interpretation, <laughs> the work of exegesis, um, which is a wonderful thing because I think the Bible has a lot to say. Um, I think one major example of how we can live faithfully in the world in a context like this would be uh, Jesus himself, right? Jesus himself traveled and he moved he migrated uh he was constantly wandering uh we go to specifically the passage that comes to mind for me right now is john 4 he uh went out of his way and went into a sumerian town where jewish people uh were not allowed to go right but he went there for a specific purpose to know the people uh when he met the woman at the well he did not uh, really, in many ways, he did not impose, <laughs> but he listened. He listened to her stories and he asked questions. And I feel like we today are troubled 
uh, and we're challenged to ask questions. We always, I think it seems like we always um, seem to know that we have the right answers, but I think instead of wanting to know the right answers, what if we ask questions first and listened? Um, I think this also yeah. connects to Acts 2. Um, like we were talking about earlier, like the Pentecostal model. And so I think there's something really wonderful about Pentecost, um, about the, 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 the preserving of languages in a way that actually invites others to speak those languages with them. Um, and then Shreya, uh, I know you are uh, really huge on linguistics. <laughs> this is something like yeah. an area that you're actually studying. So I'm curious, like, with these passages, specifically with Acts 2, with Pentecost and the Pentecostal miracle, like, what does that mean for us today in a pluralistic context? And what does that mean for Christians specifically and evangelicals who uh, want to step beyond what they're comfortable with and actually know people, um, the people who yeah. are around them? Yeah, well, I love the story of Pentecost and I think it is one of the prime examples that we can see in scripture for interfaith dialogue. And the thing is, we wouldn't we wouldn't call it that, but if you know anything about like sociolinguistics and cultural linguistics, that is in fact what is happening. And recently on Pentecost Sunday, I heard a sermon preached on that Acts chapter 2 passage and I didn't realize it before but how important is it that you have a diasporic community present there in Jerusalem and when you bring together a diaspora they're bringing with them not just their their bodies but everything that it, they carry with them, their cultures, their languages, their um, perceptions of the world. And to be able to see the gospel preached in that setting and then translated and understood in a multitude of languages, um, that is a testament to... Um, the interfaith, interreligious, intercultural dialogue. Um, because language carries with it um, social and cultural connotations. Um, and even with the idea of like the diaspora, these people, um, these Israelites, they were spread out and brought to foreign lands for centuries. Um, and so they didn't just, they weren't just coming out of nowhere, but you could see generations coming from these different lands. And I feel like it's easy to look back like at an ancient text like the Bible and to make light of that. Um, but our world today, our modern history, is filled with diasporic communities across the globe. Like you look at the United States, you look at Europe, like even here in Nigeria and Africa and like in, in Asia and in India, you see pockets of migration and you see um, 
people's ancestors leaving and settling in different areas. Um, and with them, they're bringing their culture and their religion. And it merges with um, the context of the place that they're living in. Um, and that doesn't have to be um, such a dangerous and I guess I would say maybe not dangerous um that doesn't have to be such an alarming concept but it can be beautiful because it opens up doors to make the gospel like bigger and wider and more beautiful and rich in the eyes of the people that are understanding it um because the beautiful thing about Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit came and they still spoke different languages. Like, if God wanted uniformity, he could have made them all speak the same language. God is powerful enough to do that. At least that's who we believe the Christian God to be. But there's intentionality there. And it's really a reiteration, a retelling, and a restoring of the Tower of Babel. Because at the Tower of Babel, they disobeyed and they wanted to be like God. There was a tribalism that wanted power and control and instead of being creaturely, they wanted to be like the creator with that authority instead of submitting to, to God's authority um, and really seeing like God's plan for humanity was to be um, diverse and to be scattered among the earth um, just as God had told them to be. And so when God gave them languages, it wasn't a burden, but it was a fulfillment of his plan. And although at the Tower of Babel, you see that almost as a consequence of their disobedience, there's a chance for redemption when the Holy Spirit comes. And so if we are going to be Christians today in light of Pentecost, how are we letting like the Holy Spirit work in our diversity um, to maintain and restore God's heart for diversity? Wow. Yeah. I think that is a very important point that you're making. I think that I feel like it's kind of a hunch that I have. We don't talk about the Holy Spirit much um, in a lot of Maybe not all, obviously. There are a lot of charismatic evangelicals, and I understand that. But I think in many of our discussions about race and, um, you know, uh, wanting to understand the world beyond colonialism, I don't think we talk about the Holy Spirit much um, in this context, in the American context. And I think that's why we need... Um, voices from outside of the United States as well that are exploring um, various uh, contextual pneumatologies coming from the Philippines, coming from Latin America. Latin America is a big one here. And uh, mm -hmm. Africa, you know, a lot of these contexts are really uh, 
emphasizing the work of the Holy Spirit, the supernatural and even miraculous power um, that is present in the moving of the Holy Spirit between peoples to tie them together, to wrap them around each other in a way that is so wonderful and so unique. I would say one of the words that comes to mind when we're talking about all these things is um, receptiveness. Um, Like rather than, like when you approach a person or a group or a community um, thinking, what do I have to offer them rather than what do I have to learn from them? Um, then you're closing doors before you're even letting them be opened. And so the word receptiveness really comes to my mind um, because so many, so many people in this world, so many communities are willing to receive us um and as the church i think our walls are up our doors are closed um maybe not physically but i would say um metaphorically um because we're not willing to receive the community around us to influence our our um i guess i would say our social presence in the community um a church should be moldable it should be defined by the people and if the immediate people around us come from different faiths um shouldn't we allow hold on this is not making sense you might need to cut this part out I want to say, okay, so back to the word receptive. Like, I, th- I think about the word receptiveness, and I don't feel like we're willing to receive people or even let them receive us. Like, what, I think what it would look like for Christians to let other people receive us would be to accept their generosity and their hospitality and to also like learn from them to learn Mm -hmm. under them um to be teachable in these communities and these spaces and these conversations um yeah if i'm having a conversation with a hindu and i'm a professing christian for me to receive them and for them to receive me would mean, would mean to value what they have to say and to see that like they have something to teach me. They have something to offer me. They have truth to share um, because they're made in, in the image of God. Um, they, they have... They are a sacred vessel, and they, God has given them that consciousness, and even if they have different, a different way of articulating it, um, if I am to receive them and they are to receive me, then there is a common 
ground, there's a common truth. Yeah. And I think that's the whole point of vulnerability as well, Shreya. I don't think... Um, I think a lot of us are challenged to be vulnerable. And that, that includes me. <laughs> like, vulnerability is something that I'm continuously wrestling with as, you know, not only being able to share from myself, you know, to others, but to also receive help from others. I think evangelicalism in many ways, and I'm also taking this a lot from that book uh, by Dr. Lum, right? Um, on uh, the book called Heathen that I'm reading. Um, it seems as if the historic disposition of Christian missiology has been we as the Christians, right? And specifically European origin Christians, we have the ability to change the world, to transform all these new worlds that we're discovering, right? It's been coming always from a position of power and a disposition of strength. And I feel like because of that, many Christians today were still living within those ways of thinking. I feel like they are maybe still challenged to do what Jesus did on the cross <laughs> and to do what God did through the incarnation and his giving of God's self, right? Through mm -hmm. the Pentecostal miracle. I think... Yeah. Many Christians today are still struggling to be vulnerable, especially in the work of doing evangelism and missions and being in public life. Um, and I feel like as soon as, I think as long as we are stuck within that way of framing ourselves and uh, that way of positioning ourselves against other people, uh, then I don't think we'll go anywhere. And so I think... Um, yeah. It all begins with a position of vulnerability, a position of humility yeah. and Christianity and evangelicalism as something that is first and foremost a faith that begins with weakness. Not a faith that begins with strength, but a faith that finds its strength through weakness. And I think once we realize that, once we hold on to those principles, then maybe we can start inviting other people into our lives if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, speaking of that Pentecost, Pentecostal model and the spirit, and even combining that with like the incarnational model, like the whole sending and receiving thing, like that is a big essence of the Trinity. To live in like relationship and unity, um, is this like Trinitarian concept that is um, available for us, available to us, and that we're even invited into of this endless cycle of giving and receiving um, without withholding and mutual trust, mutual vulnerability. Um, and these are all like core concepts and values, but sometimes sometimes they're so abstract it's hard to see see how it's played out um but i want to like quickly give an example and i i hope 
she doesn't mind. I won't, I won't name any names. But I have a friend who is beginning to um, talk to this guy and um, maybe, like, date him. She met him online. Um, and he is, like, a really solid guy, treats her super well, is very kind and intentional and caring, like, genuinely wants to know about her and how she's doing and um, is very present. But they were having conversations about, like, doctrine. And there were some things that... Um, concerned her because she's like gone to bible college and there were ways that he couldn't quite articulate some maybe core tenets of the faith and she there was this like there's this crossroads because you either say well we don't believe in the same god because you can't explain the trinity or you can't explain like soteriology in the same way that I learned in my systematic theology class. Or you can see like, wow, he loves people well. He's humble. He shows up. He's loyal. And you can see like, he's sacrificial. And what, what determines whether his faith is genuine and he is a believer and I don't know you think of these like different concepts within like like the Christian faith of even like like dating and marriage and it's like oh you want them to be like equally yoked and then so she's wrestling with all these questions um but but I think that she has spent a long time like deconstructing as well and realizing, like, this is the first time where she doesn't know, like, the solution to this problem. And, and I think she decided, like, to give it a chance. Because I think she's realizing that confessional faith can be problematic when you just have confessional faith alone as the hinge of um, calling oneself a Christian. Um, but the idea of like action and putting your faith into action and loving people um, and seeing like these qualities in someone, um, I think for the first time she's starting to realize that that might actually be more of a genuine test of faith than just like confessing the right doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the whole thing that we talked about last week, right? We cannot separate doctrine and practice. We cannot separate confession and what we do with that confession. And so yeah, that's that's a wonderful thing um, that you shared of being willing to compromise. And I think compromise comes from vulnerability, too. It's being willing to see where you are weak so that others can enter into that weakness and not only see that weakness. I think vulnerability is not just only about seeing your wounds, right? It's also about 
others being allowed to touch those wounds and heal those wounds. I think it's easy yeah. to always,、uh, I think it's easy to just be transparent,、uh, to just show people, like, hey, here are the areas where I'm weak, here are all the battle scars that I have. But you can't come close, not at all. You cannot touch them. I think that's transparency.、Uh, I think being truly vulnerable is moving beyond transparency and actually allowing people to touch you in the areas where、yeah. you're weak so that you can be healed.、Um, yeah. And、that's、I think、powerful. this is a shared thing. Yeah, it's like a shared thing between、um, <laughs> not only,、um, I think Christians need to do this more within their own circles, but. I think it would be a lot more beautiful when we began opening ourselves up as Christians to those who are not and be like Jesus to them,、uh, whatever that means in context、um, in your relationships with others. But anyway, this has been such a wonderful conversation.、Uh, a lot of popping off, I feel like, today, Shreya. <laughs>、um, and、yes. yeah, I just really appreciate your insight. And I'm Very excited to see how this kind of discussions, how these discussions will continue to evolve in our podcast in the future. But、um, yeah, super thankful、uh, for your insight. Thanks for being on the call today. Yes, thank you so much. And thank you for whoever's listening. 